Now, as Paul starts to write, he's going to get you in touch of where, where he's at. Second Corinthians chapter um, two, verse twelve. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me and the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death. To an other aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your precious Word. It is so thick with so much doctrine and the joy that Paul had that we can get out of this and to see and experience our victory that we already have and will come. Lord, help us to learn what Your Word is saying by the power of Your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Chapter 2, verse 12, Paul's going to Troas. You say, big deal, uh, Troas. But you look on your map, you see it's kind of nor- north of Ephesus. Quite a bit there. It's all in that area. And that's in Asia Minor. And so he probably is running out of Ephesus. Because you remember there was a riot in Ephesus. Very possibly this is what happened. And the next place he went to was Troas. Thinking he might run into Titus. Bringing good news of what happened to the, the, the church at Corinth. He's waiting for that. Uh, he really hadn't started a church there the first time he went through there. You remember in the book of Acts, you get the journeys, the missionary journeys, and Paul just went through there in a real short time. So let's turn to the book of Acts. Since it has the word there, Troas, we're going to examine that. A couple of times uh, Paul went there. In Acts chapter 16, verse 8, missionary journey by Paul and the ones with him. 16.8 says, And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. There's our city that he's going to. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. And that's in our text today too. So you have Troas and then you have Macedonia. It was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And there in Macedonia, you, of course, you have the, uh, the Philippian church there. Of course, that's where he and Barnabas were jailed, if you remember. And then the Philippian jailer gets saved, and then other people get saved. And uh, so that, that's what is going on there. And then he later goes to Thessalonica. And of course, you remember the Bereans. That's what all had happened before. Well, here he's going 
to Troas uh, again as we look in chapter 20, verse 6 through 12. It's the second time that he's there. It says, We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, came to them at Troas. There's our city there. Within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day and prolonged his message until midnight. Oh man, he extended it for hours. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus. Remember this one? We're just going to throw this story in for just a bonus. This is a great one. It always brings humor. But it's a serious thing. We're talking about a guy dies here. He's sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, just took the Lord's Supper then, He talked with them a long while. It's been midnight, and now he goes all the way into the wee hours of the morning until daybreak, and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. (laughs) Isn't that great? What a story. We like that. Well, where's this at? It's in Troas. That's a pretty neat little place then. You know, that's where that story came from. Great. Okay. Well, Paul, he's there. So a church is mentioned in chapter 20. Chapter 16, we don't see that mentioned. We could assume that maybe Paul started a church at the same time at Troas at, as he's writing this part in our Second Corinthians. This, this is amazing. This is an amazing portion of Scripture as he's telling what's going on. And this is the place that he might run into Titus. Oh, I'm hoping Titus will be there. That's the goal. At the same time, Paul's idea is to evangelize and edify. There were people that he met in Troas before, remember? And they were meeting. and um, Or at least he had, he, was, he had been there, but he moved on to Macedonia. So now he is talking uh, about, okay, I'm going to go to Troas. He goes to Troas. Where's, where's Titus at? But he's giving the gospel out. That's, that's always on his mind. That's the thing that he exists for, to get the gospel out to people, to the lost world. This is what drives Paul. This is what drives us. We know there are people lost, right? We need to get them the gospel before they die and before they go to hell. We need to get them the gospel and then we'll let the Lord take care of that, right? That's his, his work. But he came to evangelize the city, build them up maybe. He left Ephesus, moved to Troas. We don't know how long he stayed there except it said there were, the, what, like seven days? It's a brief visit. But there's a tremendous opportunity that God has in mind. And that's where we get to the next phrase. He's in Troas for the Gospel of Christ. That's why he's there ultimately, for the Gospel of Christ. By the way, where's Titus? I'm really worried about Corinth. Okay, you get the idea? Okay, so the story builds on. A door. When a door was opened for me and the Lord, a door was opened. One of the favorite phrases of Christians. Especially a lot of times it will, we'll even apply it to the door just opened and God made the way. To, you know, sometimes it might be personal things. It might be a job. might this and that. And God does that. That's sovereign God. He opens the doors. He closes doors. He's in charge. All we want to do is fit in with whatever His plan is and go with it, right? 
That's what he has planned. Uh, God had opened this door. That's what he says right there. He, he just doesn't make this up, but he says, the door was opened for me in the Lord. Um, maybe the church was born out of that. situation is incredible. Uh, God just sets all this up. Every preacher would love to step into this kind of situation. He comes to preach Christ and boom, the door just opens. He has all sorts of opportunities with different people. So in a brief time, the church is born. Let's look at some of the verses that deal with an open door. And you'll catch what why Paul uses this in other places. First Corinthians, this is first Corinthians chapter sixteen, very last chapter, just a few pages back, verse eight and nine. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Why are you going to remain in Ephesus, Paul? For a wide door for effective service has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. <laughs> a wide door opens. When a door opens and whenever things are going the way that we think they ought to go, the enemy comes in and challenges us. That's what happens. Don't be surprised. That's because of sin is still in this world. And believers have to battle it. But I think when something's happening, good, there can be other things that come along later. Well, he says... An effective surface has opened to me a white door, and there are many adversaries. God opened it. That's great. So uh, that's First Corinthians sixteen. Let's look at Acts fourteen twenty-seven. This is what Paul has in mind. Take the gospel. Take it to the lost. Get an open door. You preach it. Acts fourteen twenty-seven. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They spent a long time with the disciples. There's the ones who were sent out by Antioch, the church at that time had moved, the headquarters moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch then sends out disciples. Paul's one of them. And they started reporting to Antioch the things that had happened and how God opened a door. See, it's always about God. Said, hey, we did this, we did that. No, Paul says, God did this. He opened the door. That God always gets the glory, doesn't He? Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. One more time that this is mentioned. I like open doors, don't you? In fact, there are churches called the open door. <laughs> Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Praying at the same time for us is what pray for us. Why? Paul says, hey, hey, listen, I'm in jail. Would you pray that God would get me out of jail? You don't ever see that. Paul is always being persecuted. Does Paul say, hey, God, help me get out of this persecution. People pray for me that I get out of this persecution. Do you see that? Here's what he always says that God will open up to us a door for the Word. There we go. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. <laughs> you got to like that. 
The door is open. Do you see those passages? Doors open. Paul recognizes God's doing a thing here. He's in Troas. God opens a door. He has a burden. Paul is so upset. He's tormented. He's debilitated. I mean, he's like paralyzed. And he's thinking, are they going to love me anymore? Are they going to listen to Titus? Would they repent? What about the mutiny that's getting ready to give Paul all the trouble that they did? Would they abandon the divisions that they have? Think in 1 Corinthians whenever he wrote that letter. Remember the divisions that Corinth had? Would they turn away from the incest problem that they had? How about the quarrels that they had? The confusion in marriage and divorce. What about that? They had those kind of issues going on. What about idols? You know, eating meat. Dealing with idols. The Lord's Supper, you remember that's in 1 Corinthians. The sexual sin that was going on, and that's what Corinth was about. So, how about, how about the one who, the man who's supposed to be disciplined by the church? So, they shamefully accused Paul, but then we looked at last week, that he would be restored by the church, too. And he asked, tells them that now that they are to comfort him, uh, would they confront the, the false apostles? Well, you know, he, he loves the church. And so he ate. He ate over the issues. You ever seen an issue in, in, in church or church people or somebody that you know, and all of a sudden they're struggling so bad, it looks like they're even going to walk away. You ever had that? What you Whatever it takes, you want to make sure that they return to their first love, right? You really care about that. That's, that's where Paul's at. He says, there's no rest for the Spirit. What have we just read? There was a door open for me in the Lord. And Paul says, yay, amen. Right here in Troas, I'm going to stay here. No, it says this, I had no rest for my spirit. Isn't that a strange twist? This is the Apostle Paul, and God just opens a door. Boom, he walks through, gives a gospel. People become saved. They have a church going. And he says, I have no rest for my spirit. I've got to get out of here. Would you do that? Would you want to leave when you got something started? Well, this is where he's at. He's imagining the worst things that could happen. That could happen to current. Have you ever been that way? You imagine some of the worst things. Actually, it turns out that everything's okay. Matter of fact, even better than you ever imagined. He's discouraged, and that's a that's a situation for anybody who ministers. It's a dangerous hour for the preacher when he becomes discouraged. There's a danger of of the enemy coming in and just knocking him totally down. Well, there's no rest. It means he's a troubled man. This is an inner problem, an inner working that he has. Over in chapter 7, verse 5, I mentioned this earlier, here is the rest of the story of what's going on. So we go back, go out a little further, and we see what's happening. This is dealing with Titus now. So it's good to know the story, isn't it? Uh, What did I say? Did I say verse 5? Right? 7 5. 2 Corinthians. For even when we came into Macedonia, for our flesh had no rest. He, he, he left Troas and went to Macedonia. But we were afflicted on every side. Remember, the door's been open. Conflicts without, fears within. It's getting to Paul. But God who comforts the depressed. Ooh. Do you think Paul might have been depressed? I think so. I think that's what he's saying. Remember that word comfort? 
In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, comfort, 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 strengthen, strengthen. I was depressed, Paul is saying. I believe that's what he's saying. God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. There he is. He didn't find him at Troas, but he found him in Macedonia. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So that I rejoiced even more. Titus gives him the great news that they did what Paul wanted them to do. Paul is elated. Do you see the joy that happens out of him? Remember how he was worried when there was an open door in Troas? didn't find Titus there in Troas. He goes to Macedonia. Surely I'll run it. I can't wait. I've got to find out what's going on. But why didn't he just go to Corinth? Well, you remember, we've already seen that before, haven't we? He was afraid of how they would respond. And he'd given that letter. Not not that he's scared, but he didn't want to cause more uh, strife. Uh, He didn't want to cause discomfort and such. In that situation, so he let Titus do the work. Okay, Macedonia. This is amazing. He leaves Troas, the open door, follows his restless spirit. Should he have left Troas? Well, you see how God is working in His sovereign plan. That's a good question, isn't it? I'll leave you hanging on that. Should we? Should we leave whenever we have an open door? I'll leave that open to you. This is why this is an amazing portion of Scripture that we're getting ready to get into. I hope you get blessed as as I did. As I read through this week and and all through the week and then it just culminated in thinking what this means when when you go from verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Are you ready? Hang on. This is incredible. Wide open door. No heart to preach. Accusations against himself. Things like that can magnify in our own minds and our own hearts. And we take something that seems so big and to eternity, it really means nothing. Take something so big and you know what? God is amazing. He can take that. He can take broken people and mend them back up again. And that's what He's doing. He's doing constantly. He could have become bitter Paul could have come, become discontent, even angry. He could have drifted. No heart for the ministry. I'm done. Right? Could have done that. You read that verse 12 and 13. Do you know what? He finds Titus. Gets the news. He's relieved. He's elated. Now we go into part two. How did Paul deal with his discouragement? This is an exhilarating victory in Christ as we read there. But thanks be to God. You can say, oh, Paul, why, why did you leave? The door was open. Why why you leave? And he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. He started by giving thanks to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. You are a great God. You are awesome indeed in all the things you do. Lord, I don't know what's going on around me right now and I don't like it. This is a terrible test, but I know who you are. Thank you for putting me even here where I'm at. Because I know you're going to deal with it in my life. Paul knows that. He knows God. 
That's the idea. That's why we're here. We're here to know God better. When you love somebody, you want to know everything that you can about them. You ask them questions and you volunteer. Hey, here's where I came from. Here's what God did with me here. You know, that, that's, well, that's pure fellowship, isn't it? Well, he says this. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. But thanks be to God. Who's the one who leads us? God leads us. God. Well, that's easy. Why don't we remember that all the time? God is leading us. He doesn't look at his circumstances. He looks to God. Sorrow, anguish, the tears. What caused him to be thankful? Triumph. Triumph in Christ. Triumph. Okay, ready? We're going to go back and get a little bit of culture here that Paul is using that the people would have known. When you interpret Scripture, that's one of the rules of hermeneutics. What what about the culture? You know, we look in here, we look at the language, we 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 under, try to understand some Greek, who he's writing to, why he's writing about, and and as we've built upon this for weeks now, we see this in how it it culminates and what he's doing. The word for triumph there is triumphal, and it means to lead in triumphal procession. It's what God does. He leads us in a triumphal procession. Now this refers to what a Roman general does when he leads the the captains in a parade. And ultimately, it's probably going to mean death or imprisonment to those that he's leading in this parade. If we look in Colossians 2.15, this will help. Colossians 2.15, speaking about Christ at the cross. And then he resurrected, of course, 2.15. It says, when he had... Well, at the end of verse 14, it says, he has taken it out of the way, the, the certificate of the death, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Christ beat the devil and death Hades, everything that is against God. Sin, he beat it all. It was like he laughed in Satan's face as he ascended. In that sense there. The rulers, he disarmed them. He beat them at the cross and whenever he arose, he demonstrated the righteousness. Who he was. What a powerful thing to do, right? He beat the enemy. That's why today, if you trusted in Christ, you're no longer in the bondage of sin, devil, the world, self. You've been set free. So Paul really picks up on this. These people that he's writing to, Corinthians, would have would have known. They they knew about the Roman triumphs. They would have what we would call a parade. They'd have the honored guest as the feature person, the honored character. That would be the general. There were certain requirements that had to be met for this general to be given quite the parade that he gets. Number one, it had to be him who defeated the enemy. It had to be him, the one who's really the star of this parade. 
the actual commander that beat them. A lot of times the, the guys in the headquarters or the White House, they get all the credit for what is done by somebody else. You know what I'm talking about there, right? Had to, had to be not someone that is staying back at headquarters, but the one who fought, that was there, that led. Another thing that he had to do, he had to conclude the campaign. It had to be finished. Sometimes when you hear about a war, things are still going on, you know, and it takes months and such. No, this thing had to be finished. It is finished. It is done. It is completed. Number three, there had to be at least 5,000 of the enemies that are fallen. 5,000 in that campaign that are fallen while this war and this battle is over. And further, Rome also must get an extension of the territory for the empire. So all those things had to happen. It wasn't an everyday ongoing thing. It wasn't even an annual thing. I mean, this is a huge deal, but the people are familiar with it. Now, in this Roman triumph, you have uh, at the head of the parade, as these people, all these people are participating in it, and then people watching it. At the head would be your state officials. It would be the ones who are the the leaders of that nation, the Senate, the congressmen, right? They're the head of that. Uh, Secondly, after that, are the spoils of the war. The things that they gained. Today you could think us gaining an armory, uh, whether you think of tanks, missiles and such. And that's part of the parade too. All the things that they took captive there because of their great victory. And then as you move further on in, in this parade, you would see after the, the spoils, the enemy, as they are the ones who um, are on display. They have been beaten. These are the ones who are still living, but they've been taken captive. And so that is quite the evidence you have the spoils, and then you have the enemies. Then, not only that, they're in chains most of the time. They're part of the parade too. And usually, at the end of the parade is where the leaders of that army would be put to death. And there was a privileged quote that was like this, of being in the triumph until they were put to death. Oh, thanks, Bob. Matter of fact, this is a good time for a break. I think my voice is going. I think that's an indication. I think. <laughs> Thank you. What do you have next? Well, you have the religious people. It would be the priest. The priests are involved in this. Of course, in Rome, you know, they had all sorts of religions, and the priest would be carrying the censers, you know, incense. If you've ever been to a Catholic mass or such, uh, they'll have those censers. And I used to go, ah, what is that? And it just fills the whole room up. And you see the smoke of it. Wow, this is really strange. Back in the 60s, they used to do that was to cover up the, you know, the, the dope and everything that was going on, you know. But anyway, the priest with their, with their incense and... Uh, that's a part of it. And then following, at the end of this parade, there would be the general. The general is the last one. Magnificent. 
He has a chariot. Four horses. The crown of Jupiter on his head. Purple tunic. It's embroidered with gold, palm leaves. Everybody can see it. Glistening in the sun. This is an incredible view. Purple toga over it. And it's marked out with golden stars. And in his hand, he has an ivory scepter. Some of this almost makes you think of Revelation where you have chapter 1, Revelation of Christ. Only this is in the unbiblical way. And of course, we know Christ is going to come back in His triumphant way, riding on a white horse with us. (laughs) Ivory scepter with a Roman eagle on it. What an incredible sight it must have been. Crown of Jupiter over his head. And after him rode his family. This is the general's family. And there is one other part. I said the last one was the general, but the general has an army. So there comes the victorious. What a scene it must have been. Finally, we get to the general, and guess who's behind him? The army. The army that took those lives and captured these guys. They're wearing the decorations. And you know what they're shouting? Triumph! 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 You can imagine how loud that must have been with all the army saying those things. Triumph! They had victory. Paul is taking this whole scenario that he has seen, maybe more than one time, and he's thinking of the conquering Christ. The victorious Christ. The Messiah in His victory. And He thinks of Himself in this parade. And He sees Himself as one of the captives that Christ has taken. And captives are usually killed, right? Well, there was a thing that happened to Paul and all Christians. We died in Christ. That's talking about the spiritual man takes a line. Ephesians 2, it says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And He awakens us, brings us alive. And so Paul is saying, I'm in that parade. He's the victor. Jesus is that general. Remember the Roman general? The Lord Jesus Christ is the general. Philippians 2 every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. What a common figure that Paul takes and they have such a powerful meaning as he brings in what this is all about. Yeah, here's what the world does, but I want to tell you who the real victor is. Here's the triumphant one. The conquering Messiah, folks, is who we have. You in that army? He's the representative of the very people of God. He represents us. He is the head of the church. And so all those things come to mind. Paul is thinking, you know, in verses 12 and and, and 13, and he comes to verse 14, I praise to God who leads us in the triumph of Christ. <laughs> the meaning of triumph to Christians, let's look at it. Romans 16.20 Here's the meaning to us. Let's get the spiritual aspect. We know what happened in the Roman world. Well, here's something much better and lasting. This 
is it. Only 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. You say, well, I thought he beat him at the cross. He did. He's going to come back to claim this, though. He roars about like a lion right now. He is wide open. Deceiving the nations at this time, is he not? Is it happening? And he says, okay. It doesn't look like Satan's beaten. He was at the cross. And that's why we now are are Christians. But eventually, there will be the eternal punishment of Satan where he will not tempt anyone anymore. Isn't that great news? He'll crush him. Just like Genesis 3 said after the first sin. How about Hebrews 2.14? Look at the victory that happened because of Christ. It defeats all the wicked and evil things that's going on in the world today that's deceiving people. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, physically, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He became like us. Philippians 2 that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. Who's that? He says it right there. That's, that is the devil. <laughs> he renders Him powerless. Power of death. First John 3.8 He beats Satan. He beats death. What a conqueror. First John 3.8 Just back to a little bit before Revelation. This is exciting news, isn't it? The one who practices sin. That's just constant. Going on. Just that's, He's an unbeliever. The one who practices. If you practice sin. We all sin. But it practices an ongoing constant. Never really repenting of it. The one who practices sin is of the devil. What happens to the devil? For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to know? Look in Colossians 2.15. I want to be on his side. <laughs> when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, we read this earlier, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Ephesians talks about the rulers, the authorities in high places, the demonic realm he defeated. And Romans 8.37, I mentioned this earlier. This is what we are. Because this is what God says. Romans 8.37, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer victor, triumph, through Him who loved us. And then he says, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Neither death, nor life. Not even yourself. We're talking about eternal life. What's eternal mean? It means forever. You don't have eternal life and then you lose it. For all those people that are out there, sad to say, 
much of the church believes you can lose your salvation. I'm going, do they ever read Romans 8? Oh, uh, don't believe so. Because it's not, it's all about God in Romans 8. It's all about God's Spirit. It's all about Christ. And it's Him who is in sovereign control when you look all the way through the rest of the chapter. <laughs> God bless forever. Amen. Says there. So, we go back to our Corinthians. My. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. You remember the censers that the priests would have? And they would have that And then there would be roses and flowers and they would be stamped on by the, the horses and everything going through there. It would create a very significant aroma. Quite the fragrance that came around whenever that triumph happened. And he's saying that through Christ, the sweet aroma comes out of us. Now, isn't that incredible? The incense will be going up in the air, the censers and all that. Here it is. I think it's obvious that Paul is thinking that the triumph in Christ, the aroma, is the true knowledge of Christ. And of course, it means everything about Christ. But what was it that Paul preached when he came to Corinth? I knew nothing. I preached nothing but Christ crucified. This is what we have as the message. Christ crucified. Dying for sin. He's talking about Christ crucified. That is the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. If you know Christ, it starts with that. Right there. It's in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ that one learns theology. You say, what do you mean? Well, when you look at the cross, what do you think of? You think of not only what He did, but what happened to you. What were you before? You were dead in your sins. He took those sins. Man by nature is depraved. He's wicked. We need to get a proper picture. And when we look at the cross of Christ, we get the proper picture of us. There we are at the cross. Somehow we died there. Our sin that is ever seemingly before us is then taken away. We look at the cross of Christ. So to preach Christ crucified is to reveal man at his depths of his sin and then Christ pays for it. And that's where we get into the second thing. You get the nature of God when you look at the cross. And you see God who is a righteous God and Unholy people at the cross. God is righteous and He dies for His elect at the cross, pays for their sin, forgives the sins forever, adopts us into the family of God. It's the sacrifice of Christ. You look at the cross. Sin has to be paid for. And if it's paid for, then it doesn't have to be paid for again. It's paid once. Once for all. Jesus dies for sinners. He pays for the sinners. And we find significant revelation concerning the nature of God at the cross. The nature of man at the cross. Do you see that? There's the knowledge of Him. We carry this fragrance to other people. It's, a, it's the Gospel. It starts with the, the death of Christ. And why did He have to die? Because we broke the law in every aspect. 
the law is broken. And so we we think that's an amazing thing. Romans ten fourteen and fifteen talks about they have to hear the good news. And how are they going to hear the good news unless there's a preacher sent? And that's what God does. And of course, we're all to minister that message. Um, another picture here is the fragrance of Christ found in verse 15. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God. We are a fragrance. Sacrificial offering. A sweet fragrance before God. It can take you all the way back to Leviticus and and the the fragrance that would go up to God whenever there was a sweet-smelling aroma. God would be pleased with that sacrifice. Why? Because Moses, in his law, was looking forward to the time when Christ would make that complete. This was just a picture at that time. And it's to God, by the way. A fragrance of Christ. It starts with God. It's going to be a fragrance to people who are... um, the ones who are perishing, it's, it's, and it's going to be a fragrance to believers, one or the other. That's what he's saying. But first of all, it's to God. God is pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. God was pleased, as it says in Isaiah 53, to crush Him, His only Son. Why? Because it's what He demanded. And there wasn't any of us that could step up to the plate and be righteous and die for all the people. He has to be the man God. This is a... What a, quite an explanation of Ephesians 5.2. Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us for a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering. God is pleased with that and, and it's because of Christ. So when Christ died for sinners, the fragrant offering pleased God. Fragrance. It's a real interesting word. Old Testament, Hebrew, and the burnt offering. It's related to the word rest. Fragrant. Rest. Well, what do you mean? Well, sacrifice was made and the smoke, the smoke went up. We're speaking of that sacrifice. The sacrifice points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a divine pleasure there because of the perfect obedience of the Son of God. The man God. And it gave great pleasure to God. He was pleased with that. Ultimate pleasing. So, that's how we are saved. So when the smoke rises from the sacrifice of the very Messiah, it's pleasing to the Lord. And Okay, you ready for this? And here's where it gets in with us. It diffuses. It ascended to God. The knowledge of, of, of Him, of Christ, in every place is seen in the cross of Christ. When Paul goes to the lost in Corinth, Christ crucified. You have to expose their sins. You have to see why He really died. Yeah, it makes people uncomfortable, you betcha. But we're a sweet savor. First to God, and then to the people who desire God then. There's a dual effect here. This is incredible. I never really thought too much about it before. I've seen it before, but I started looking at it and I go, oh my. This dual effect is double predestination. This is incredible. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Among those who are being saved, it says in verse 15, it's a fragrance. And to those who are perishing, it's a fragrance. One likes it. The other one detests it. You have the elect. 
you have a reprobate. That's what we're dealing with. It's right there. The ones who are saved, the ones who are perishing. Aroma from death to death. Another aroma from life to life. This is the somber approach we have to look at. If we were to preach to an audience not even knowing who they are, and we preach the gospel, could we say that God is pleased? And you can say, I don't even know if a person heard that or really didn't care. I, I doubt if anybody really even understood what I was saying. There was no response. Is God pleased? Yeah. Because His gospel is preached. Every time it is, it's like a sweet-smelling aroma. It's a fragrance that goes to God because it's His truth. It's His truth. Gospel is never preached in vain. The Word of God never goes out in vain. You've heard those passages, haven't you? It always is in accordance with His purpose. It's not by accident when you tell the Gospel. Somebody trusts in Christ at that point or another person completely just makes fun of it. Christ is the Savior of sinners. And people need to seek Him because of that Gospel that's been presented. It's by God's grace that they too can know the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and it starts with the cross. Even when you're rejected, when you preach the Gospel, when you feel you have made no impression whatsoever, it's, it's just like the parable of the sower. don't have enough time to go through that. The sower, seed, four different soils, only one was good at the end. And he heard the Word and he understood it. He acted upon it. That is the one who is being saved. That is the aroma of life. Life to life. Those who are being saved smell the death of Christ through us. We are the censors of this fragrance. The same sun that brings life to some branches can also bring death to others. The same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. Same sun does that. Smelling Christ. Aroma. The ones who believe it, they love it. They receive Him. They embrace Him. They treasure Him forever. That's what life is about as Jesus Christ. Others say, I didn't understand a thing and it's just as boring as can be and I have no interest in this whatsoever. You Christians are stupid. You're fools. That's the reprobate. In other words, some people smell the sacrificial love of Christ and the life of one who brings the Gospel and they smell death. They hear the Gospel. There's no hope in that. There's no future in that. There's no joy in that. And it leads to death. That's the heartbreaking side of evangelism and missions. Because most people won't accept it. They do not want to trust in that message. These are the people who don't believe, they don't see Christ as precious. Do you get that? Christ is preached. These individuals are dead. Death leading to death. John Calvin said, the force of the Gospel is such that it is never preached in vain. It's always effectual and it leads either to life or death. When you give somebody the Gospel, they don't trust it. You know what? They are held in contempt of a holy God. 
because they will get it probably preached maybe by somebody else and then somebody else and they continue to deny the truth. And you know what? God judges them even more severely. Whether it be for His glory, by His grace people are saved, it's also His glory when there is judgment made. And Romans 9, at the end of Romans, nobody wants to touch Romans 9 unless you believe in an absolute sovereign God because it goes against a man-made gospel and just condemns it because it's God in His sovereign control. He is pleased. So don't measure ministry by how many people believe the message that you give. Don't measure it by that. It all rises when the truth is preached and it goes up before God. He's going to do with it whatever He's going to do. Isn't that great? We can't save anybody. God does. But we preach it. We preach it. And, man, we've got to close here. We have a song and then we have the Lord's Supper, and then we have lunch out there. At least we won't be over-hungry. We, we can take... Is ten minutes over? Okay, five to ten minutes over? I didn't get an answer. <laughs> Let's go back to this. To the one in aroma from death to death, among those who are perishing... <laughs> is anybody laughing? <laughs> okay, we're going to close with this. Ready? Okay. Verse 17. Or at the end of 16. After he said this, I mean, this is deep theology, folks. When you talk double predestination, we're talking God has chosen some out of all the sinners. It's amazing that He would save anybody. Why would He save you? Well, I've been pretty good, by the way. I, I chose God. You don't understand the Gospel. You don't understand the cross. You're not good. You're dead. In your sins. We need the gospel, the balm of Gilead, to come in and heal those wounds, the sin that is festering. We have this message, and all who hear it are to trust it. There, every man everywhere is commanded to repent. But at the same time, God has taken some out of a long train of people for thousands of years now and He picks some to be with Him for eternity. And He doesn't pick it on the basis of how smart they are to choose God. He bases it on what He already started for the foundation of the world, who He chose to be in fellowship with Him. That's a gospel. And it starts right before the Scripture of Genesis. And you say, my, this is awful deep. Uh, as a great general offered the sacrifice to Jupiter, the preacher's mission, that's all of us, we advance the sweet smell of victory that ascends to the throne of God and pleases Him. Second Corinthians 5.9. We've got to get out of here. 5.9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's our ambition. That's glorifying God. We just, I just want to please God. Hey, what are you going to do? I just want to please God. Whatever it is, hey, it's okay. Whatever God, I just want to please Him. And you can say, man, this, this is incredibly above me. How, how can I do this? He says at the end of 16, who is adequate for these things? The answer is, real quickly, no one. 
is adequate. Nobody say, Dennis, well, you're a preacher. At least you ought to be a pretty adequate. I am not adequate for anything dealing with the Gospel of Christ. I am not adequate at all. But His Word is. His Spirit is. He just uses me as a clay pot. That's all I am. Clay pot. Man, I am glad to be in a clay pot. I'm in the army. I've got His uniform on. I'm marching in the parade. Who can bear this weight, the aroma of the Christ-exalting life that will lead some to eternal life and then lead others to eternal death? Who is adequate to give that out? And you're not, and I'm not. For we're not like many peddling the Word of God. There were others that thought they were adequate. False apostles condemning Paul. But as from sincerity, but as from God, all glory to God, We speak in Christ in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. It comes from God. The advocacy is all from Him. No one is sufficient. This is deep stuff we've been in, folks. I don't know if you caught it all. You might want to ponder on this. This is really, really deep stuff. I mean, the theology in this text. I may not have brought it out the way it needs to be. But pray that the Holy Spirit makes a a powerful teaching to you. We're to be faithful to His Word. And even if it's offensive by talking about sin, it will be pleasant to God whenever you tell people the truth and where they're at and where they need to be. So I have a whole lot of Scriptures to look up. I'm not going to have time to do it. But we have a responsibility as ministers of Christ to take this truth out. Paul later will talk about that. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Where does it come out of? Is it 2 Corinthians 5? We have this ministry to be reconciled. To give people the reconciliation. Okay, peddling, it really means to be a, a huckster, uh, a con artist. He deceives buyers. It's a, it, in the trade of. It means to adulterate. To, to get something out of cheap gain. It's to take something and it, it's pure... And then somebody adds water to it. And now all of a sudden you have something that's less than that. It's to trick people. Plato used it of uh, 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 hawkers. They, they hawked their goods. And then, then Paul says, well, we don't peddle the Word of God, but it's from sincerity. And the word there is elekoneia. Koneia dealing with judging. Uh, it's like dealing with to be held up to the light of the sun for inspection. To take it out there and to be have the ultimate light upon something, all of a sudden you can see the cracks in the pot. Somebody knew about that. They broke it and they kind of you know, glazed over it and made it look better, but it was now broken. He's saying, everything I say is from sincerity. It's from God. We are to renounce all of our pretense and our hypocrisy because it's in the sight of God. Does that mellow things down to that? In the sight of God. Everything you do, when you give the gospel out, God's watching. I'm going to finish it off with this. Ready? Hold on. You have the privilege of being associated with the King of Kings. You have the privilege of being having a promised triumph. You have the privilege of influencing men for eternity as the sweet aroma, a fragrance of Christ goes up to the Lord. Whether life unto life or death unto death. And you have the tremendous privilege of pleasing God. 
And you have the great privilege of power, as it says here in 17. That's from God. You're not adequate, but it sure comes from God in proclaiming the truth. And that ought to be enough to end our depression, our discouragement, and all those low-down things that want to take us down. And Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Your Word is precious. It's holy. It's true. Everything we have said as we've looked in Your Word here is to be taken in light of what Christ has done for us. And that we would desire to triumph in joy, giving this message that arises up to the heavens and God is pleased. Thank you for this day and all the joys that we have and extending this on out as we continue in our worship and the Lord's Supper and then the lunch that we have. Thank you, Lord, so much for these people to have this day of worship. And it's all sitting at your feet as you teach us from your word. Amen. Amen.